If someone were to ask, what is the benefit Christianity provides, how would you answer? You might say it's forgiveness of sin or peace with God, a home in heaven. Someone else may say it's um, the better life, an innocent life, eternal life. If you were asked the question, what benefit does Christianity provide? How would you respond? It was John MacArthur who said Christianity provides one thing. And fortunately, it's the one thing that we desperately need. Christianity provides Christ. It's embroidered right there in the word. You can't have Christianity without having Christ. It is the one thing that Christianity provides. It's the one thing that we desperately need. It was A.W. Tozer who said the most significant fact about any person is what he or she perceives Christ to be. He went on to write, no nation will rise above religion. No religion is greater than its understanding of Christ. Therefore, the most significant fact about any person is not so much what that individual does or accomplishes, but the most significant fact about any person is who he or she perceives Christ to be. Today we continue our study of the Colossian letter. It's a series that's entitled The Supremacy of Christ. It is with that thought in mind that I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Colossians chapter 2, and this morning I would like to read verses 6 to 15 in your hearing. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. I'll begin in chapter 2, verse 6. I'll conclude at verse 15. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord... Continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you've been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and every authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done with the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailed it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, the obedience to his perfect word. You may be seated. Now let's be very clear. The one provision that Christianity provides is Christ. So we ask ourselves this morning, based on this passage of Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15, what does it mean to have Christ in our lives? I want to give you three statements These three statements come from these few verses. The first statement is this, that in Christ we have his daily presence. In Christ we have his daily presence. We see this in verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, since you have received Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. 
That word live is better understood and translated walk. We are to walk in Christ. We are to walk in the faith of Christ. This walk of Christ, this journey of faith is something that broadens and deepens the longer we walk with Jesus. I wonder if anybody could testify today that it's sweeter today to follow Jesus than the first day you believed. It is sweeter today to follow the Lord because your walk with Christ, it broadens and it deepens so that you could give testimony that you love Jesus more today than you did three years ago. That you need Jesus more today than you did three months ago. That you know Jesus better today than you did three days ago. Because your walk with Christ is a walk that deepens and it broadens. Paul says, this is because you have received him as Lord. It was C.H. Spurgeon who made an interesting observation as he combed through the book of Acts. He said, this is what I discovered. The title Savior is found twice. The title Lord is written 92 times. Lord Jesus is written an additional 13 times. Lord Jesus Christ is found in the book of Acts another six times. C.H. Spurgeon said this is the clear conclusion. Yes, it is true that Jesus is your Savior, but better still, is he your Lord? Do you surrender and submit unto the lordship of Jesus Christ? To say that Jesus is Lord is to say he's the shot caller. To say Jesus is Lord is to say he's the one in charge. To say that he's Lord is to say I live my life in hopes of honoring and glorifying Christ my Savior. To say that he is Lord is to say on a regular basis, on a daily basis, we live under the submission and the surrender of his lordship over our lives. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say there's no relationship that's outside his jurisdiction. To say that he is Lord is to say there is no action that's beyond his domain. To say that he is Lord is to say there's no attitude beyond his prerogative. That Jesus is involved in every aspect of your life. The thought process, the feeling process, your work process, your recreation life, uh, all your relationships. He is Lord of everything. The country preacher was right. If he ain't Lord of all, he ain't Lord at all. This is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you follow Jesus... He's not just Savior in the sense that he saved you from your sins, but he's also Lord. Paul says, since you received him as Lord, continue to walk in him. Some of you realize that I am a Seinfeld fan. I love Jerry and George and Kramer and Elaine. I've got every episode of every season uh, at my house. I, I just, I sometimes just watch episodes of Seinfeld just because it's mindless, it's idiotic, and sometimes it makes me laugh. There's one particular show where uh, George and Jerry are obviously in the coffee shop, and they're in the coffee shop, and they are talking about something that has just really perturbed them, apparently, um, and George is fuming, and what he's fuming about is because his fiance wants to know everything about his life. She even wants to know the code of his bank card for the ATM machine. And he says, clearly, you're not supposed to give that code to anybody. Clearly, uh, on the back of the card, it says, do not give this code to anyone. So why does my fiance need to know? Does everything have to be her and me? Can't there be some things in life that are just me? Is that so wrong? Is that so selfish? And very calmly, Jerry just sips his coffee and says, why, yes, that's the very definition of selfish. 
when you and I approach our relationship with God, there are times that we say to Jesus, Jesus, does everything have to be you and me? Can't there be some things in my life that are just me? Is that so wrong? Is that so selfish? And the answer is yes. That's the very definition of selfishness. And in fact, we've said before that all selfishness is sin. All sin is selfishness. When Jesus invades your life, he takes over. When Jesus comes in, he gives you his daily presence. If he's not Lord of all, he ain't Lord at all. I like what uh, Warren Wearsby said. I appreciate his alliteration when he comes to verses 6 and 7 of our passage. He simply says that here describes a believer in Christ who is grounded and growing and grateful. He's grounded, Warren Wearsby says, because the text reads that we are rooted in Christ. That word rooted is written in such a way that it communicates an action that took place in the past and still has present consequences. So you are rooted at some point in the past and you're still rooted today. That the moment of faith in Jesus Christ, he uh, rooted you in him and nothing can unroot you. Nothing can unplug you. Nothing can uplift you. There's nothing that can unroot you because you are rooted in Christ. That sounds pretty Baptist, doesn't it? We say once saved, always saved. In a more biblical way, once rooted, always rooted. That we are rooted in Christ and there's no situation, scenario, there's no circumstance, there's no setback. There is nothing that can uproot you. If you are in Christ, you are grounded in Christ. So that you are not a rootless tumbleweed that's blowing with every wind of doctrine that comes down the pike. You are rooted. So you know what's right and you know what's wrong. You know what's true and you know what's false. You are rooted in him. Warren Wiersbe says we are grounded in Christ. Oh, but he also says we're growing that's where Paul writes that we are built up, we are strengthened in him. These words that are translated built up and strengthened, they are present participles, which communicates this is an ongoing action. If rooted is happening once in your past and it still continues into your future, being built up and strengthened is something that you have to do on a regular basis, on a daily basis. It's a present action which communicates uh, ongoing experience so that you continue to be built up. You continue to be strengthened in him. We all know that if we don't exercise the muscles, the muscles get flabby, right? Such is the case with your faith. If you don't exercise the faith, the faith will get flabby. And you are not to have a flabby faith in the kingdom of God, but you're to be built up. You're to be strengthened. And there's something that you must do on a regular basis as you surrender to his daily lordship. Because in Christ, we have his daily presence. Wearsby says, not only are you grounded, not only are you growing, but you're also grateful that in all things, we have overflowing thankfulness. If you are in Christ, you know that he never leaves you nor forsakes you. Christ has never abandoned you, has he? He has never turned his back on you. He's never aborted the mission of you. He has never said, you know what, I'm not going to walk with you anymore because of what you've done, because of what you've said. No, there is nothing where Christ will turn his back on his faithful followers. So here we are thankful. Thankful not so much because nothing bad ever happens. No, 
We're thankful because even when bad stuff happens, Jesus is still with us. Jesus will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And because of his daily presence in our life, we have overflowing thankfulness. Not just thankfulness that's half full. Not just thankfulness that's to the brim. We've got overflowing thankfulness because somebody in the house could give testimony when there was a time when you really messed up and God should have, he should have uh, destroyed you, but he called you. He should have killed you, but he kept you. Somebody's here today who says, you know what? Jesus should have abandoned me a long time ago, but I give testimony and I've got overwhelming thankfulness that he never gave up on me. I've got overflowing thankfulness. Paul says this Christ, in him we have daily presence. In Christ, secondly, uh, we have his divine personhood. You see this in verses 8, 9, and 10 of our passage. That in Christ we have his divine personhood. Do not, Paul says, be carried off, held captive by any hollow philosophy. Don't be carted off by anything that is not true, that is unbiblical. Don't be carted off and carried away and held captive by hollow, deceptive philosophies of this world. They're all man-made, Paul says. It's not Christ-made, it's man-made. So don't be carried off. Don't be held captive by those things. Friends, any philosophy, any religion, any cultural trend, in their day or our day, that somehow demotes the sufficiency of Jesus or denounces the supremacy of Christ or denies the deity of our Lord, it's not of God. Because anything that makes less of Jesus is not the gospel that has set you free. Anything that demotes him, anything that denounces him, anything that makes less of him is not the good, good news gospel that liberated you from your past and promised your home in heaven. We make it our aim to lift high the name of Christ we are Christ people. We are Christ followers. We are Christ worshipers. We talk about Christ. We think about Christ. We sing to Christ. We pray unto Christ. I mean, we are all about Jesus. We, we want to be Jesus followers so that individuals see us and they say, there goes a little Christ. There goes a godly guy and a godly gal. They're just trying to make much of Jesus in their life, in their marriage, in their home, in the marketplace, in the workplace, at school, on the ball field, wherever they are. They're just trying to make a lot of Jesus. That's true. We are trying to make much of Jesus because we are Jesus people because anything that demotes him, anything that denies him, anything that diminishes him is not the gospel of the Bible. Now Paul is speaking specifically to a hollow philosophy, a false doctrine that church historians will call Gnosticism. The Gnostics were coming in, these heretics that were coming into the first century, and they were denying the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for salvation. 
they weren't denying Jesus. They were saying they were followers of Christ, but they were saying that Jesus plus something else equals ultimate salvation, that he's just one rung on the ladder. And we've talked before that Paul is saying he's not one rung on the ladder. He's the whole cotton-picking ladder. I mean, there ain't no way that anybody can get to God except through faith in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, you have the prominence and the preeminence. You have the sufficiency and the supremacy of salvation in Jesus Christ. So Paul is addressing this hollow philosophy, this religion that was made by man, that they were saying that in order for you to get to God, you had to know various emanations, various teachings, various sparks that would come from the divine. And they said that Jesus was one of the sparks, but he was one of many. And Paul is saying, no, he is the one and only. He is the only way that you can get to God. Now, what's interesting and ironic is that the apostle uses their own vernacular against them. The word for emanation in the Greek language is pleroma. Literally translated, it is fullness. In our passage, we see the word fullness. This is the second time that Paul has used it. He says that in Christ, the fullness of deity is in bodily form. The first time he used it was in chapter 1, verse 19, that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. He's playing on that word fullness. He's playing on that word pleroma. He's saying, you want to talk about emanations. You want to talk about the great mystery of the cosmos. I'll tell you the great mystery of the cosmos. I'll tell you about what has come from God. I'll tell you about the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It is Jesus Christ. He is the full pleroma of God. There's nothing you can add to him. There's nothing you can subtract from him. There's nothing that can deviate from him. He is the full pleroma of God. He is the fullness of deity in bodily form. We say it is God in the flesh. It's Savior with skin on. He is very God and very human. He is God in the flesh. And God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus Christ. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God the Father. If you love Jesus, you love God the Father. If you know Jesus, you know God the Father. But if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God Almighty. Jesus says, I am God in the flesh. He is the fullness dwelling in him, the fullness of God, is dwelling in Jesus. So Paul is telling the church that in Christ, this one provision that you have in Christianity, in Christ, you have his divine personhood. He's not just a good man. He's not merely a godly man. He is the God man. Now, some have misinterpreted Paul's writing in verse 10. When Paul says, since the fullness of God dwells in Christ and the fullness of Christ dwells in you, there have been some people who have misread Paul and said, well, he's teaching, then we can become God. Because if the fullness of God dwells in Christ and the fullness of Christ dwells in us, then it only stands to reason that we can be God. And the way I will refute that in a simple statement is this. Paul is not a Mormon. Paul is not a Jehovah's Witness. Paul is not one of these false religions that go rat-tat-tat on your front door and try to engage you in conversation and ultimately 
their theology is that you can be good enough to become a God. And you can bring them in your house and sit them right there in the living room. You can offer them Coke and candy. You can give them a cup of coffee. You can engage them in conversation and say, you know what? I realize why you think you may become a God. We can go to a place like Colossians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. And I can tell you that what Paul is saying is not that you will be God, but you can be godly. It's not that you can be Christ, but you can be Christ-like. See, Paul is not a Mormon. Paul is one who says, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that I'm not God, but I know that I need God. I know that I'm not Christ, but I need Christ. And if Christ is in me, he will stick out. And if Christ is in me, he will act out. And so I can act Christ-like. I can act godly, but that does not mean that I am a God, and it doesn't mean that I am a Christ. I like the illustration, the analogy that Kent Hughes offers. Every illustration has its shortcomings. And I'll tell you up front, there are shortcomings in this analogy, but every analogy has them. But I do find this illustration very helpful for Kent Hughes says, when he comes to Colossians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, that really what Paul is talking about, he said, imagine with me that you are standing on the shore of the Pacific Ocean. You have an empty jar in your hand. You reach down and you fill that jar with the water of the Pacific Ocean. In that jar is fully the ocean. But all the ocean is not in that jar. And Kent Hughes says that when Paul says that we are full of Christ, that's true. All of Christ fully dwells in us, but our humanity cannot house and hold the full extent of deity. There's no way. It is as vast as the ocean. What we've got in our little jar is great, isn't it? What we've got in our jar, it is Christ. Christ living in us, the hope of glory. But we can't house all of his deity. We can't hold all of his divinity. It's as vast as the Pacific Ocean. So that in Christ, we have his, 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 his divine personhood, for he walks with us and he talks with us along life's narrow way. He lives in us and he sticks out of us. Paul says, you've got to know this Jesus, the one that you worship, the one you declare is Lord over your life, for he will give you daily presence and he will give you his divine personhood, not that you're going to become a god but he will give you his divine personhood. The third and final statement is that in Christ, we have his decisive power. This is in verses 11 to 15. We have his decisive power. Now, I need to give you a spoiler up front right now because in this last section, um, some people around you are going to get happy because when you walk through these four verses, Um, If you are in Christ, you can't help but get happy when you hear all that Paul is trying to pack in these few verses. He says that we have the decisive power of Christ available to us. What does he mean by that? Well, he says that our sinful nature is like uh, uncircumcision. And he says we need to be circumcised, not, not by the hands of men, but by the faith that comes from Christ. And when we are circumcised in our heart, when we are circumcised in our spirit, when we are marked as belonging to the Lord, 
When we have faith in him that he placed in us and pulls out of us, when we have that faith, Paul says, it is as if we've been baptized with him and we've been raised with him. Now, whenever we do a baptism, we, we speak a phrase kind of like that. We are buried with Christ. We are raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. You've heard that so many times, it just kind of goes right over your head in one ear and out the other. But do you hear what Paul is telling the church? That if you are in Christ, if you have faith in the accomplished work of Jesus, that he died on the cross for your sins, if you believe this, then, then you are baptized into him. And your sinful nature is gone. And your new nature has been given to you, and it's been given to you by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that said to that dead corpse, get up, and Jesus got up. It's the same Holy Spirit power that raised Jesus from the dead on that very first Easter Sunday morning. That same power resides in you, believer. That same power occupies and dominates your thoughts, your thinking, your activity, your life. You were dead in your sin. Now you're alive in Jesus Christ because Jesus has raised you from the dead with the same power that raised Christ. To make matters even better, what Paul says in following is that in Christ, God forgave us all our sins. The operative word there is all. God forgave us all our sin. Not just some of our sin, not just our past sin, not just our big sin, not just our gross sin, but all of our sin. Stop and think about that. All of your sin is forgiven by God in Christ. The sin that you commit in the morning, the sin you commit at noonday, the sin you commit late at night, all of it has been forgiven in Christ. The sin you commit against your friends, the sin you commit against your family, the sin you commit against your foes, all of that has been forgiven in Christ. The sin that everybody knows about, the sin that only some people know about, the sin that nobody knows about, all of it is forgiven fully in Christ. If you're in Christ, all of your sin has been forgiven, and that forgiveness is full, it's free, it is forever. I don't know about you, I don't see how you're sitting still. I don't know about you, I don't see how you're not on your feet. Because in this moment, God God is telling us in Christ Jesus, I forgive you all of your sin. Not just some of it. Not just some of it, but all of it. All of it that you have committed. All of it that you're going to commit today. All of it that you will commit in the future. All your sin forgiven. Then Paul gets very graphic when he says that God canceled the written code with all of its regulations, all of its stipulations. He took it away and he nailed it to the cross. Now you may not know what all that means, but it just, you just got a holy hunch, that's pretty good, right? I mean, I don't know what all that means, but it just sounds really good. So what does it mean? Let's take a few moments and unpack it just for a second. What does it mean when he speaks about the canceled code? Well, we have to agree that the law of God has been 
stamped upon all creation so that creation beckons that there is a creator. No one is without excuse. There is general revelation that's been given to all of creation that there is a God. And this God who made all things seen and unseen, visible and invisible, he's good and he's holy. This code, this law of God, is not only generally given to all of creation and nature, but even stamped in your DNA of your heart because you're made in the image of God. Every person made in the image of God. Embedded in every person, there's this code, there's this law that that there is a God and he's holy, he is just, he's righteous. But beyond just the general sense, specifically, God gave the written code to the world through the nation of Israel. It was a mediator named Moses who went on top of Mount Sinai and there God wrote the Ten Commands and all of its regulations and all of its stipulations. He etched it into tablets of stone with his very finger. He described who he is and what he expects from us. He described himself in his holiness. He, he described his demand for your obedience unto his life. He, he described for us that because he's holy, you must be holy. I must be We've got to be perfect in his sight. The first five books of the Old Testament, we call that the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch, it, it has the law and the, the written code. It has the law and all of its stipulations and all of its regulations. The message is clear. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings curses. If you ever read through the Ten Commandments, and if you're honest with yourself, you've got to conclude, I'm a criminal, guilty as charged. There's no way that we can keep this code. Now, we say to ourselves, I'm going to do better next time. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm really going to do better next time. You've got to believe me, God. God, I I can do this. I really can do this. I can honor you. I can honor my parents. I can can tell the truth. I can live pure lives. Uh, I won't steal anything. God, I can do this. I'll just try harder next time. And the next time comes and we mess up again. Can we just be honest with ourselves? Every day we blow it. We blow it big time. I mean, every day we mess up. None of us are perfect. There are a few of us who are nodding our heads up and down. There are a couple of others that have a smirk on their face. Most of you look stoic as if you have no idea what I'm talking about. But I got a sneaky suspicion you know exactly what I'm talking about because you know you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We blow it on a regular basis. We say, God, how could I do that? I'm so sorry. I promise I'll do better. Every time that you fail to keep the written code, the law of God, and every time you make the promise, I'm going to do better, it's as if you have written God a divine IOU. God, I owe you one. I really do, I owe you you another one. I I, I now owe you 12. Uh, God, now I owe you 2,374. God, I really lost count. I I just keep writing divine IOUs. What Paul is saying, is that God in Christ gathered all of your failures, 
all of those divine IOUs, all of that canceled code, all of your failed attempts, he gathered and garnished all of that. He took it to Calvary's cross and he nailed it to the tree. He nailed to death your failures. He nailed to death your sin. He nailed to death your condemnation. He took all your IOUs and he nailed them to the cross. He nailed them sufficiently to the Lord Jesus. Many times people have asked the question, who nailed Jesus to the tree? There are a lot of suspects. Some have said the Roman soldiers. I mean, they're the ones that drug him out of town and stretched him wide and drove rusty spikes through his wrists and his feet. And you're right. The Roman soldiers, they did literally nail him to the cross. Some have said, well, symbolically, it was the nation of Israel. And more specifically, those Sadducees, those Pharisees, all those religious elite, all those religious people of the first century, they're the ones that nailed him to the tree. I understand. You're right about that, too. So other people say, you know, really, we're the ones that nailed him to the tree. It's because of our sin that it's as if we were there when he was nailed to the cross. It's as if the spiritual's exactly right. Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Oh, yes, we were. We were there, and we were the ones swinging the hammer. And I get that. But ultimately, do you know who nailed Jesus to the tree? God. God was pleased to crucify Jesus. You say, preacher, how can you say that? Because God has loving justice. In his justice, penalty for sin has to be paid. In his love, he made the payment for us. Because God loves you and because he's just, he took all of your failures, all the failed stipulations and regulations, all of, the, all of the code, the law of God, and all of your failed attempts, he nailed to the cross so that Jesus would bear your condemnation. Horatio Spafford's exactly right. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. God nailed my sin to death at Calvary. God nailed your condemnation to death at Calvary. God nailed all of your failures to death at Calvary. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. So the great swap took place. We give Christ all of our sin. He gives us all of his innocence so that when God looks at us, those of us who are in faith in Jesus Christ, he sees us as righteous as Christ, as innocent as Christ, as glorious as Christ, as if we live the innocence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus endured our hell so we might enjoy his heaven. To God be the glory. <laughs> Friends, that's decisive power. When God in Christ, forgave us all our sins. He took them to the cross. He nailed them to the tree. But the last couple of lines, uh, Paul just says that in Christ, uh, once again, de de describing his decisive power, that in Christ, God made a public spectacle of the devil at the cross of Christ. He made a public spectacle. Now that word, it's translated as public spectacle. You would better understand it as a victory parade. 
In the Roman Empire, uh, when, everybody, when anyone came up against the nation, the nation would send out its army. And if that army was victorious over the enemy, then it would not be long after that victory that there would be a victory parade that would go down through Main Street on all the major cities of the Roman Empire. And the victory parade, um, it, it looked pretty common regardless of the city in which it was walking. At the very front of the line would be the loot. That would be the treasures that were reobtained from the enemy. Behind the loot, you'd find the losers. Those would be the, the enemy, the soldiers, and army, those captured in war. Behind the losers, you would find the uh, leader of the enemy. Now, sometimes that leader was killed in battle, but more times than not, they tried to not kill him in battle, but capture him in battle. Because they, they wanted the people to see that the leader of the enemy, he was alive, but rendered ineffective. Y'all didn't get that. Okay. So the enemy who has a leader who's been captured, he's alive, but he's rendered ineffective. He, he's rendered as useless. He's rendered as powerless. Why? Because right behind the leader of the enemy would be the victorious general. And the victorious general would come in and all eyes would be on him. They would not have their eyes on the loser. They really wouldn't have their eyes on the loot. They wouldn't have their eyes on the enemy leader. They would have their eyes on the victorious general. What Paul is saying is that the cross of Jesus Christ, God, God displayed decisive power at, at uh, the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha because Jesus, in one failed swoop, he defeated the enemy. He completely annihilated Satan himself and he disarmed him. Him. He dismembered him. He, he, uh, he took down the devil's weapons of mass destruction. And what are the devil's weapons of mass destruction? It's sin, death, hell, and the grave. And what did Jesus do? He took all of that upon himself. He took your sin upon himself. He took your death upon himself. He took your hell upon himself. He went into your grave and kicked out the backside because in the midst of the moment, he dismembered and he disarmed the devil and all of his armory so that the devil is a defeated foe. You and I are the loot. We are the treasures that have been rescued from the enemy. The demons, those are the enemy soldiers. That's the army of the adversary. Then you've got the devil who's there. And don't keep your eyes on the devil because he is a defeated foe. You can't say the devil made me do it. Don't give him that much credit. He doesn't have any power over you. He's alive, but he's rendered useless. You don't need to say the devil, the devil made me do it. No, you need to say, you know what? I am keeping my eyes focused on the last one in the line. I'm keeping my eyes focused on the victorious general. It's Jesus the Christ. From the third day, Jesus burst forth from the tomb. He conquered all the weaponry of the adversary. He uh, annihilated it. He made it useless. He comes victorious, and he, we are to look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition.
from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Friends, we don't look to the adversary. He is a defeated foe. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the victorious general. He has, he has destroyed your sin, your death, your hell, and your grave. So you live in freedom. You don't look to the one who's hoping to recapture you. You look to the one who set you free. You don't look to the one whose purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. You look to the one who gives life more abundant and free. This is the Jesus that we're talking about. What benefit does Christianity provide? Christianity provides one thing, and it's the one thing that we need. Christianity provides us Christ. What does it mean to be given Christ? It means that in Christ, he gives you his daily presence. That in Christ, he gives you his divine personhood. That in Christ, he gives you his decisive power so that you are victorious over everything and anything that comes at you. So all to Jesus, I surrender. And all to him, I freely give. And I will ever love and trust him. And in his presence, I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. This is why we say that Christ plus nothing equals everything you need. Are you here today and you've never trusted this Jesus as your Lord? Today can be the day of your salvation. I want to be very clear. I'm going to pray. After I get done praying, the instrumentalists will be up here. The singers will be here. We're going to lead in a song. When we lead in that song, some ministers are going to be standing down front. If you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus as your Lord, you've never confessed your sin, you've never acknowledged that you're a broken person in need of wholeness, if you've never trusted Jesus, you've never made that public, today is the day for you, for you to come forward, to take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need that Jesus in my life. I believe that I'm a sinner and I trust that he died on the cross for my sin. On the third day, he was raised from the dead. If you're here today and you are a Christian, but let's just be honest, sometimes your eyes get distracted. You take your focus off of Christ and you start looking at something else and someone else. Sometimes we begin to evaluate the other loot, don't we? We begin to look around at other people and say, well, why didn't my loot, why isn't it as shiny as their loot? Why don't I have what they have? And sometimes we begin to look at the loot. Sometimes we begin to joyfully glee over the losers. And sometimes we even captivate ourselves on the enemy leader, the devil himself. And today, friend, if you've lost your focus, today I, I call you, I urge you, to look to the one who died for you. Look to the one who set you free. Maybe you need to come here and pray at the altar. Maybe you're here today and you need to pray for yourself or maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's a spouse, a family member, a coworker, a teammate, classmate. Maybe you're here today and you need to join this church. Whatever it is, don't be numb. Don't refuse to give in to the work of the Spirit upon your life. Jesus plus nothing equals everything you need. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Have your way. Let us respond in obedience. And Father, we acknowledge that you are the one thing that we need. And you're the one thing 
that Christianity provides. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.